Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large at Recode. You may know me as someone who wants to ask Edward Snowden for advice on how never to travel anywhere these days. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I'm thrilled to have Bart Gelman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning and Emmy-winning journalist and author who writes for The Atlantic. He previously wrote a book about Dick Cheney's vice presidency called Angler, and his brand new book is called Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Bart was very involved when those first stories were reported, and he's going to talk about that and more. We're recording this on May 13th, less than a week before the book comes out, and there's all kinds of issues around surveillance and other issues that I'm excited to talk to him about. Bart, welcome to Recode Decode. Pleasure to be here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your background, because I think I'd love for people to get sort of a setup of how you got to be writing about Edward Snowden and and that story. Um, It's in the book and everything, but I think a lot of people don't know it. So it'd be great if you could sort of give us the sort of short version of how you got to where you got to write this book. Well, I joined the Washington Post when I was a baby. I covered uh, courthouse, State Department, and I was a foreign correspondent in the Mideast. I remember. I was even smaller. I was was delivering mail at the time. But go ahead. Keep going. (laughs) I remember you in the newsroom. Yeah. Uh, I came back, I I covered um, the Pentagon and diplomacy and moved into a kind of an investigative seat where I did uh, nothing but long-term projects in the newsroom. And after 9-11, it became pretty much nothing but national security all the time. My series on Dick Cheney and my book on Cheney uh, focused heavily on the national security issues and had two chapters on the warrantless surveillance of Americans that was disclosed during the Bush administration. It was known internally as uh, the vice president's special program. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be uh, one of the four programs of domestic surveillance that Snowden helped to disclose. Because I'd written about that, Laura Poitras approached me in 2013, uh, just after an anonymous source named Virax made contact with her. Explain who she is. She is a, she works for. Laura Poitras is a, a fantastic independent filmmaker uh, who has made a number of documentaries uh, that she shoots by herself, produces by herself, and uh, she's done them on, uh, on Gitmo, on Iraq. Uh, and the very good Citizen Four, which is a kind of uh, 
real-time look at several days in a Hong Kong hotel room with Snowden. Mm-hmm. When he was revealing, when he was bringing these documents to their attention, her and Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Right. It's with Glenn Greenwald in the room. Laura and I had been fellows together at NYU. She knew me. I had given her advice on encryption and that sort of thing. She came to me one day in January of uh, 2013 and asked me to meet in some very private place. And she didn't like the first one I picked, so we picked another one. She didn't want me to take notes. Uh, She wanted to tell me about this anonymous source who had made contact with her claiming to be uh, someone from the intelligence community claiming to have a big scandal. And she wanted to know if this looked like it was for real. And that started a long collaboration with Laura that brought us to the first story in June about the PRISM program of the NSA. All right. So PRISM, explain for me, because what happened was that Edward Snowden, and I, we, we did an interview earlier this year when his book came out, about it was a program that the government had that was a surveillance program that that uh, it was doing different things. And Edward was working in uh, for the NSA as a contractor, and he had moved different places, um, including Hawaii, I think, is where he was the last part of his career. Is that correct? Right, Hawaii. Yeah. And so he he then became disturbed, and he's he's a really interesting personality. I want to get into this later with you because I think you depict him rather well. Um, sort of a righteous person and also arrogant. Very typical of the techies. I, he was so he's, he reminded me so much of people I cover all the time, except he's living in Russia and is considered a traitor. Talk a little bit about what you thought, because you probably get these kind of tips all the time because you work in intelligence. Well, to be honest, my very first thought was, oh no, not this again. Because after I wrote about surveillance in the Washington Post and in my book, I was getting an inbox full of crazy people who. Uh, imagined uh, conspiracies uh, by the intelligence community, uh, it's a subject that has unusual power over disturbed minds. Right, it does. And then there would be people who were just fakers or who thought they had a scandal, but it wasn't for real or they didn't understand the subject at all. And so the noise-to-signal ratio on tips of this kind uh, is terrible. Yeah, I remember in the Washington Post newsroom where I worked, when I was there at night, people would call and say that the CIA was invading their brain and they needed to wear all kinds of stuff. But you'd get all that. That was one of the biggest series of tips that came in was the intelligence agency is spying on me, really, that essentially. And most people were mentally disturbed. But you just never know, correct? That's the kind of thing that you have to deal with when you're in this line of reporting. You never know. Uh, there, there are sometimes when I feel like I can discard something after the first communication. Mm-hmm. This one showed some intellect mm-hmm. and had a veneer of plausibility to it. And so we tested it. And that went back and forth for quite a while. In fact, there was a mutual vetting going on with Snowden trying to decide whether he could trust a representative of the mainstream media, of which I was a card-carrying member, and me trying to figure out whether he really actually knew anything and whether he could provide evidence for the claims he made. All right. So you're you're doing this and he was that was one part of the book is you him deciding whether he trusted you. He did trust Laura uh, and Glenn, but you were something different. Explain that because it's a really interesting question of where he wanted this to go out to, where he wanted this information to be revealed in. Cuz he wanted the he wanted the 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 stature of a mainstream media organization, so it would have some heft, presumably. 
Well, it was lucky for me that he chose three journalists because I was not his first choice or his second choice. He wanted strong advocates of his position. He wanted strong skeptics of the national security state. Glenn Greenwald had already made his reputation uh, like that. He was a combatant uh, from the left in public opinion. Laura had been personally picked on by the surveillance state because she was, after making one of her films, she was stopped at the U.S. border every time she passed through for special secondary inspection. They would copy her computer. They would copy the files off of her uh, SD cards and her her, uh, her video files and so forth. And she was getting sick of it. That was actually how we first met when she came to me for advice about how she could protect herself during inspections like that. And she vouched for me with Snowden. But Snowden decided ultimately that having someone from a sort of brand name mainstream news organization would be helpful if it worked out. He wasn't sure whether the Washington Post or I would have the nerve to publish stories that the government didn't want published. Um, I thought that was a profound misunderstanding of who we are and what we do, but that was his belief. His belief was that we would be intimidated. But he figured if it worked, it would work, and if not, he had the other two. Right. And so talk about sort of what happened then, because here, these are these questions, because one of the things you did was you um, talk about what he unveiled and from your perspective, what it meant at the time, because you had been writing about this, this idea of the government doing much more domestic surveillance than you thought. Was this surprising to you when you finally saw the documents that he that he put out? Oh, yeah. So much of it was a surprise. Some of it was long feared or suspected or believed and there were tech people for years who said, well, a sufficiently well-resourced adversary could do the following kinds of things on the internet if it wanted to listen in on everyone. And so, uh, and there were people who built tools like the Tor anonymity network uh, to get around that sort of thing. But there was granular detail here that uh, went beyond anything that had been publicly known before, or, and certainly that had been publicly confirmed. I frankly had kind of a freak out when I first understood how big and broad and sensitive the archive was that Snowden had given me. Explain for people who don't. I still think, you know, the, the, the noise around Snowden is less about what he revealed and more about what he did um, and how he did it. But please talk about what you, th- what you thought was the most profound parts of that. Well, you're saying you'd like to know about uh, the content. Yeah. You know, what are the... Pro- yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. I think that got lost in a lot of the, the drama around Snowden himself. It did get himself. lost. It, so it talk a little lost. bit about that, because I know Silicon Valley was super freaked out, and they should... They, it's, I, I can't ever tell whether they were surprised or not really surprised and were, were feigning sort of shock and disgust at what the government was doing. No, I have a view on that. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it pretty quickly. There two things that dominated the debate in terms of Snowden's disclosures. The first was the monitoring of call data records, the metadata of U.S. telephone calls. Every call in the country that it could reach, the NSA, with the help of the FBI and the help of the phone companies, was collecting who you called, who called you, what time, how long you talked, and other metadata like that. Uh, And you put that together in sufficiently large quantities and you have a social network. Yeah. You are able to 
find out everyone's relationship to everyone else in the country. That was the first of the disclosures made about Snowden, and that was by Glenn Greenwald in The Guardian. And it was a very big deal, uh, and it dominated the conversation because it was very clearly and unambiguously domestic surveillance. Mm -hmm. It was U.S. calls. It didn't matter whether you called overseas or called your next-door neighbor. That was all being uh, taken down. Right. The second big one was a program called PRISM, which, and this one, this one collected content. This one was uh, the NSA asking large U.S. internet providers like Google, Apple, Yahoo, Microsoft, and so on, for the content of accounts that they would name. And it, unlike previous lawful programs, which required individual warrants in every case, in which the NSA would have to go to a FISA judge, a yeah, special are, foreign intelligence. These are secret courts that, that determine these right. things for people who, don't, who aren't as familiar. Right. Foreign intelligence surveillance judges um, who operated in closed session uh, uh, under classified rules uh, with only the government as a party. In the past, the government had to get an individual warrant every time it did one of these things. The rules had changed uh, in secret ways that no one knew about publicly which enabled the government to give just a giant list of tens of thousands of what they call selectors, which is mostly email addresses. And they would all get sent at once to Google and Microsoft, and they would have to produce en masse the contents of a high volume of accounts. That was known as prison. That also became famous. The thing that did not get as much attention, to my frustration, uh, was the became the bulk of my work uh, writing this for the Washington Post, and uh, especially once I started partnering with Ashkan Sultani, who's an independent uh, uh, security and privacy consultant. And this was the bulk collection of content and metadata overseas. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked like this. They would go to a foreign access point. And they'd say, give us everything that looks like a cell phone location. Give us everything that looks like a, a computer address book, and so on down the line. And the problem with that is they were allowed to presume that if they collected it overseas, the people they were collecting on were foreign. Well, that's just not true anymore. Right. When I send an email from me to you, and we're both in the United States, uh, there's a near 100% chance that a copy of that is going to either travel overseas or be backed up overseas. Right. Because Google and so on are, are global networks. And so the biggest story about this, and the one that I think made the greatest impact on Silicon Valley, was when Ashkan and I wrote that the NSA was breaking into right. the Google and Yahoo and Microsoft clouds. So they were already encrypting a great deal of what traveled across the internet. Mm -hmm. But eventually it would get to a data center and maybe it's in Singapore. And at the data center, inside the private fiber that is bought or leased by a large company like Google, the data was traveling around unencrypted. It was naked, it was, it was in the clear. The NSA figured that out, and the NSA started breaking into those cloud infrastructures, uh, and it, it was able to read data as it traveled from data center to data center. And this is the same information that it was allowed to get with a warrant 
under quite easy circumstances using the PRISM program in the United States, and yet it was breaking in and doing it overseas. The important thing about these overseas operations was that they were capturing a huge amount of American data. They were capturing American accounts by at least the tens of millions because they can't help it. If you're sweeping in bulk, you're going to get a bunch of stuff that you want and a bunch of stuff that you didn't aim for on purpose. They weren't allowed to aim for Americans, but they were allowed to catch them. And once they had us in their net, they could use that information. So it was as, as though there was a rule that says, you can't fish out in the ocean for a fish named Bart. But you could just take a gigantic net and sweep in huge schools of fish. And then once you have those in your tank, you're allowed to look for Bart inside there. Okay, we're going to talk about what happens to fish like Bart. When we get back, we're here with Bart Gelman, the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, and the American Surveillance State. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more. Like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology? Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down, and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger. Doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long-lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion can help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash Neelai. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash Neelai, to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash Neelai. Okay, we're back with Bart Gelman. He is a well-known journalist, award-winning, and he's also the author of a new book called Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. 
Bart, we were talking about schools of fish and what they're allowed. Let's be clear, they're not supposed to be taking, surveilling Americans. And But the, the internet has provided the opportunity to do so, given that the, the Americans are giving up all kinds of information to social networks or to Google or anybody else that they have relationships with. Talk a little bit about the impact on tech of, of what happened here, because I've always felt like the Edward Snowden moment was the moment that uh, the relationship, which has been close, closer than people realize, was quite hurt. And people in Silicon Valley, depending on which company it was, was Twitter was more loud about it, but others, they they all reacted with sort of shock. I was sort of surprised they didn't realize why wouldn't the government come fishing in their, um, in their pond. So the tech companies all knew that the rules had changed and that the NSA could come to them mm-hmm. and give them 10,000 accounts and say, give me all the content of these accounts under authority of a, of, of a federal judge. Mm-hmm. And they were comfortable enough with that. They, yep. It was the force of law and they were doing it. And I have no reason to think that they were especially disturbed by it. But when they found out that the NSA was breaking in uh, to another door of their house overseas and not telling them about it and just helping itself, uh, that really pissed them off and it took them aback. And uh, I think that was a big, big moment for tech. In fact, uh, there were a number of uh, top tech executives that were gathered I'm told, at a conference in China at the time that this story broke, and it was the talk of the conference, and it was a defining moment. It was the moment that, first of all, they decided to take defensive countermeasures. And this was an extraordinary thing. You had, for the first time, American companies treating the American government as an adversary and spending millions and millions of dollars to defend against U.S. government surveillance. Okay. That was a big moment, and it had not happened before Edward Snowden. Now, it was also uh, facing China. It was facing Iran. It was facing other countries, which were already doing this to them in in many states. Google had its tussle in China earlier. Talk a little bit about that, because they were used to doing, to having this, but not the U.S. government, correct? Right. They were used to defending themselves in China, and in infrastructure that touched China, they were not used to the idea of a global adversary that could intercept data on the private fiber that's going between their data centers. This is not the open internet. This is fiber optic cable that uh, these companies buy or lease themselves. No other traffic travels on them. Mm -hmm. They were not used to those as being targets, and it changed the way they operated. So what do you think the impact was? I think it did. I think it led to the to them not paying as much attention to different things, not cooperating with the government on things like election interference and things like that. I don't know if you think that was the case, but the relationship was not irretrievably broken, but it was pretty broken at that, that time, as I recall. It was badly hurt. And some of it may have been principle. Some of it may have just been outraged that, you know, your own locks have been picked. And and a big chunk of it, let's be honest, had to do with uh, market imperatives. There was a lot of global outrage about NSA surveillance when these stories started breaking. And the question was, uh, can we trust Microsoft anymore to host our company uh, cloud infrastructure? Can we trust Amazon? Can we trust, uh, can we trust Yahoo, Google, uh, and, and so forth? Uh, they were at very real risk of losing the biggest market they had for growth. I mean, they, their presence in the U.S. market 
for email, for cloud storage, uh, for data infrastructure, they were pretty well saturated in this market. All their growth was going to be overseas. And you had Europeans, for example, starting to say, well, we're, we're not going to allow use of American inf infrastructure if that's just going to be on the menu for the NSA. And so the companies had to make very strong indications, not just with words, but with deeds of their independence. And what do you think the impact of that was, of them doing that, moving into encryption, moving into stronger encryption and different things they were doing? Because, again, there is, there does need to be some cooperative relationship between tech companies and the government, or maybe you don't think that at all. Uh, I, I think that some surveillance, a substantial amount of U.S. intelligence collection is justified and necessary. And so you need to have the means of doing that. What especially bothered me, and then what I tried to explore in the book, is the idea of bulk surveillance, of collecting everything in order that you can find anything, uh, rather than targeting surveillance at specific intelligence targets um, to begin with. Let me be clear about the reason. There is an important legal and operational concept in intelligence gathering that's called incidental collection. If you pull in a big bucket of information and it happens that there are Americans in there, that's not an accident because you know there are Americans swimming in that sea. It's not unexpected. It's not even undesired. But it has to be called incidental, which means you weren't aiming for them. Mm -hmm. But once you collect them and you weren't aiming for them, you collected them incidentally, you get to keep that data. And in some cases, for example, the FBI can sort through it and mm -hmm. look for Kara, look for Bart inside that. And other big things that might, other crimes, other things that you that might be suspect, correct? Or to them right. suspect. Uh, it, and they can do that for criminal investigative purposes. Uh, so then you have a situation in which information has been collected without the normal Fourth Amendment protections and without the benefit of a warrant. And yet, if they find evidence of a crime, uh, they can use it. Uh, this is the kind of information that would be suppressed if they did this with the usual sort of domestic law enforcement means. Right. So one of the terms you that was used in the book, you were quoting someone, which was database of ruin. It's creating a data. Could you talk about that? Because, and then I would love to shift that, you know, the government was doing this, but the tech companies themselves all have this information, even if it's been sort of served up by consumers who know they're doing it, who know they're giving all this information. So talk a little bit about this idea of a database of ruin, because I think people don't realize how much you can put together information to create, you know, to create a really problematic situation for a lot of people, secrets and different things that they want to keep uh, confidential. Well, it was Paul Ohm, I believe, uh, in an article, I, if I remember correctly, in, in uh, a Harvard journal, who coined the term database of ruin to describe a situation in which any sufficiently large collection of information is bound to have data in it which, if revealed, could destroy lives. It could put people in danger. It could expose victims of crimes uh, to their victimizers. It could expose personal secrets that would destroy marriages. It, it could expose trade secrets that would destroy jobs. Uh, that if you put together enough information, there are going to be connections in there that are terribly damaging. Mm -hmm. And although it's true, that private companies, uh, private internet companies, have enormous amounts of data about us. It's different, first of all, when the government has it, because the government has uh, compulsory power over our lives. And it's also true that the government has a breadth 
of access to information that even the Facebooks of the world don't have. If you can actually stand at the crossroads of the internet and take whatever you like in bulk and put it through systems that cost billions of dollars, you could do things that no private company can reproduce, even a giant like Google or Facebook. Are you worried at all that these companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon increasingly have all this information and, and no accountability in, in some ways? Is that where you would are? Is that a concern of yours? Oh, God, given- yeah. So talk about that a little bit, because they don't—they may not be able to arrest you, but they certainly, you know, at one point I was talking to the founders of Google and they I was giving them a hard time about trying to control all of search. And I said, what if a bad person, you know, took over your company? And they were like, we're good people. And I said, yeah, but what if a bad person, they, they, they wouldn't even conceive of the idea of it. And I was like, the, your information in the hands of a really bad person is really bad. And this was a decade or more ago. That's such a good scenario to put to people. Uh, imagine that someone you don't trust as much as yourself mm-hmm. has access to that power. And I, I, I tried that with U.S. government officials, too, by the way, who refused to conceive of it until Trump came along. Right. And then they saw someone take control of the arms government who actually did have bad intentions and actually did have disrespect for the rules uh, and norms and they started changing their tune. That was one of the most interesting parts of the book, in my view, is the conversations I was able to have with people like James Clapper um, and Jim Comey about what it's like to look at these extraordinarily intrusive arms of government through the lens of their control by a guy like Trump. Right. So talk about that, because you, when you, right after, in the wake of doing these stories, you had been close to the intelligence, but you had sources there and you were covering it from a mainstream media organization. It wasn't It wasn't sort of, uh, you weren't at odds with them necessarily doing reporting and sometimes you were at odds. But in this case, you became at odds with them. Talk about that reaction. Uh, and especially to, even to this day, the reaction to Snowden is visceral from many intelligence people I talked to or government officials in the State Department. Susan Rice, for example, almost turned blue when I said his name when I didn't interview, I had done an interview with him and then I heard right after and it was really fascinating. It was years and years later. So talk a little bit about the reaction and then how, what happens now that they've changed in the idea that it could be abused? I'm amazed that they can't believe that it can't be abused. Well, the state of my relationship with uh, U.S. government officials is not especially concerning to anyone but me. But the fact is that from the moment the first Snowden story appeared under my byline, I was absolutely persona non grata Mm -hmm. among uh, sources and acquaintances and even friends I had known in uh, the national security community over the years. Right. I was scheduled um, at a place called the Aspen Security Forum, which is almost like a summer camp for the national security establishment uh, out in Colorado for four days a year. Uh, I'd been there, been going there for years. I would get on stage. I would interview people, moderate a conversation. Uh, it's all uh, done at arm's length, but it's ultimately uh, a friendly enterprise. It just happened that I was scheduled to be moderating on stage a conversation between Danny Blair and John Necroponte, both of them former directors of national intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were supposed to talk about something else, but six weeks after the Snowden stories broke, there was no doubt we were going to talk about this. And I lost the room in five minutes. I mean, they just hated me. 
mm-hmm. uh, there were this 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 visceral sense of betrayal, uh, and that this kid Snowden, who was twenty nine at the time the first stories appeared, that this kid should take it upon himself to disclose their secrets, uh, and they're disposed to believe in the early days that the damage is greater even than it is. Uh, well, I mean, the, the the sense of betrayal, the sense of feeling that there there could be no possible justification for this conversation. There could be no possible justification for not trusting them. Why didn't everyone understand that what they were doing was on our behalf to protect us? Right. Which I think was Cheney. Cheney would talk about that. If you knew the darkness that I see, you would know you would not hate me as much. That kind of thing. You right, hear that very a much lot. So. From that, those groups, and then it was sort of like we'd like to see it, so we could see whether we should hate you or not. But it was it was sort of the idea that we're doing this in your best interests. This is good for you, whether you know it or not, and you don't even know what we stopped. Essentially, all the different attacks that you didn't know were happening, which is also the staple of movies and things like that. But uh, or or home. They, they or couldn't see any good in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they absolutely. were missing that. So how talk about how that's changed now. How do you perceive how it's changed? Uh, do you think there there is a, a rethinking of Snowden? And then in the next section, I'd like to talk a little bit about your relationship with him because I think and what he represents from your perspective as you depict him in this book. But talk a little bit about what's changed. How has it's just because Trump disdains national security that he's more uh, interested in surveillance, or if he's not interested in surveillance because he's he, right now he's accusing Obamagate as whatever that crime is that he seems to be talking about. It has to do with this idea of surveillance. So, like, the the members of this club, the members of the national security establishment, people who grew up and spent careers in it and did their best and had honest motives uh, and believed that what they were doing was critical to the survival of the country, they recognized the power and the potential and the intrusiveness of what they did. They understood that in the wrong hands— Bad things could happen, but they believed in the system. They believed in the values of the workforce. They believed in the potential of rules to constrain behavior. They thought the system was working just as it should be. Everyone knew what the Fourth Amendment was. Everyone knew uh, what the regulations were. There were well-developed levels of oversight inside the system. And so the fact that the public couldn't oversee what was happening was of no consequence. Right. Well, then comes Trump. And it's not that he disdains national security, uh, although he does. It is, and it's not just that he disdains their advice, although he does. It's this fundamental sense that he is not constrained by rules, that the law and the regulations and the traditions that they rely on are of no value to him. And that he has demonstrated a remarkable ability to suborn people, to lure them across lines that they did not think that they would cross. And this is one of Trump's superpowers, is that he manages to taint people. He manages to get them to do things they they thought they would never do. And suddenly they find themselves, without quite understanding how they got there, saying things and doing things that uh, that would have been out of the question uh, a year or two earlier. So where does that put us right now? Where does that put us right now in, in the in the in, in national intelligence? What is the that you keep reading through its sources said and this that they're that they're fighting back, that that they're trying to keep their standards up, but where where are they actually from your perception? Where is this 
given how far we've traveled since Edward Snowden, where do you put them right now? Well, there's a huge struggle inside inside the institutional arms of government to maintain standards, to maintain rules and norms. And it's an ongoing battle, and I don't think we have seen the end of it yet. Um, it's most obvious and most in the public eye in the Justice Department. But let's take, take an example. Uh, a year and a half ago, the U.S. intelligence community gave its annual assessment of the world. It's a public testimony in which the director of national intelligence and the heads of some of the large intelligence agencies come to both houses of Congress and explain the state of the world. It's, a, it's what's, what's the threat landscape facing Americans. And they talk in detail about terrorism and regional disputes and nuclear proliferation and hacking and cybersecurity and so on. Well, they gave that talk and their honest assessment using the best intelligence and the best analysis they could bring to bear was different than what Trump said about Iran, was different than what Trump said about North Korea. And he freaked out and he reamed people out and he fired people. And this year, when it came time for this annual threat assessment, the intelligence community said, we're not going to make one. We're not going to give public testimony. We're going to give it only in classified form, in written form, to Congress. So there won't be any public disclosure, which is a, a huge damage to the ability of, of this democracy to understand and debate its own national security priorities. And they did it solely for the reason that they were afraid of the president. Right. So how do you change that? You, you don't, or you just let it happen until he's gone, or do you push back or, and get fired? Because they all do get fired if, if they continue to do this. Well, I mean, I, look, I think if you are at a certain level of government and you go to work for a guy like Donald Trump, you have to be prepared to be fired. Uh, it's the only defense you have against being entirely corrupted if things go in that direction. The intelligence community likes to talk about speaking truth to power. That is one of many ways in which they actually resemble journalism. Uh, they gather information, they sift it, they analyze it, they publish it for whatever publishing means in their world. And they feel a very strong norm of speaking truth to power, of telling people what is happening, whether or not it's what their consumers want to be happening. And they have to live up to those words. And if they can't live up to those words, they have to resign. That, that's, that's my view. That's my, as a citizen, that's what I would want my public servants to be doing. Right. So what will happen now from your perspective of this? And then when we get back after the break, I want to talk about what, what is the American surveillance state right now? But the impact being is they're going to wait it out? Or what, what do you imagine? I, th I think the intelligence community is trying to wait it out and is doing the best it can. Uh, but every time someone sticks his head up or her head up, you've had a, a decapitation of uh, some of the finest intelligence officers and uh, and and managers in the government. Uh, and you've you've had people fired for either speaking their minds or being suspected of being the kinds of people who will speak their minds. Uh, and you have nakedly political and unqualified people at the top of the intelligence community now who are just obvious cronies of the president without experience in the intelligence world, the kind of people who would never have been appointed by any other president, Republican or Democrat, to these jobs. So, yeah, they're trying to wait it out and keep their head down and avoid any further damage if they can. It's really 
<laughs> it's really what the cyber experts would call security by obscurity. They're trying not to be noticed. Ha, that's great. Anyway, we're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Bart Gelman, the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. We're back with Bart Gelman, the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Talk a little bit about your relationship with Edward Snowden, because now, you know, he's, it seems, he seems so far away given the stakes now. But what, I want to hear what you think, why you think he did it and how you ended your relationship, or do you still have an ongoing relationship with him? We still talk from time to time, although there can be long, long gaps uh, between. And the truth is, I spent so much time with my head town writing this book uh, that I wasn't much good company for anyone for a while there. The relationship has ebbed and flowed. It was always fraught. Uh, it began with suspicion. I didn't know who this guy was, whether he knew what he was talking about. He didn't know whether he could believe in me to do what I said I would do, uh, to publish uh, over government pressure. And we did have government pressure. There were There were government efforts to dissuade us, at least, from publishing certain parts of the story. And there are certain parts of the story we didn't publish. We were suspicious of each other, uh, but we came to build a considerable amount of trust. I found him to be very reliable about things that he could state as facts. He had opinions. He had sort of grand frameworks for does, surveillance. Yeah. But if he told me this widget attaches to that widget or uh, this system collects from that, collection point, I found those things to be remarkably accurate over time. So what do you think his motivation is? How would you describe for what he was doing? Because he's a complex person. And again, I don't mean to make it seem small, but he reminds me of a lot of the people I cover. He has the same sort of attitudes, same level of arrogance, some righteousness. Um, do, do you consider him a traitor? No, I, I think it's a silly debate, honestly. But uh, okay. I'd, I'd, Tell me why. I'd, 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 Sorry, literally, traitor means that you have changed your allegiance from the United States mm -hmm. to an enemy state and that you do what you do with an effort to harm your own government and society. Right. Uh, that's literally the opposite of what Snowden did. He, whether you agree with it or not, Snowden believes that he was acting on our behalf. Snowden believes that he was uh, acting on behalf of democracy and on behalf of the citizens' right to understand what was being done in their name uh, and done to them. And he explicitly was looking to create reform in our own side, not to harm it. Right, which did happen, of course, which did happen in the wake of it. 
Right. Snowden does not like to talk about harms. Um, I can see that there must have been some. That, mm-hmm. But you have two very fundamental priorities of society that are colliding here as they often collide. I mean, sometimes, mm-hmm. for example, maybe the economy and public health in, this, in, in the time of coronavirus may pull you in opposite directions. It's also true that self-government and self-defense can pull you in opposite directions. Uh, If we know, then our enemies know. If we don't know, then we can't make basic decisions about how we want to run ourselves as a society. We can't make basic decisions about what we're willing to grant in terms of power to our government. And if the government is spying on us in secret, it is changing the nature of the relationship between governed and and government in ways that, that, that citizens can't accept. And so government, I mean, I guess you could say Snowden did some harm to intelligence gathering, and he did some good, I think a great deal of good, to democracy. Snowden uh, also did a great deal of good for Internet security, because because of him, uh, you have a vast transition from an unsecured Internet to a secured Internet, so that today— uh, almost every website, you know, starts off with HTTPS, uh, uh, secure socket layers, uh, uh, encryption that makes it much safer to do your banking and your shopping and to secure your personal information and also to secure yourself against surveillance by any government. All right. Well, let's talk about the risk. I, I would love you to. What harm do you think it did? I'm, I'm curious. You, you talked about it in the book, but some harms to intelligence gathering, but not to democracy. That's a very good way of putting it. What has changed in the gathering of information by intelligence agencies? Well, I think Snowden's disclosures and the countermeasures taken by large players on the internet primarily the hardening of communication links, make it much harder for the NSA to collect everything now. It still has the ability to crack into just about any target in the world. It has uh, the best hackers and an extraordinary infrastructure, uh, extraordinary resources. And if the NSA says, I'm going to come and surveil uh, Kara, they're going to do it. There's almost no stopping them. There's hardly anyone in the world who can protect against a targeted attack. Mm -hmm. What Snowden made hard was collecting the whole bulk. And there is therefore going to be, there's going to be some intelligence that they could have gathered in the past that is harder for them to gather now. Right. There's just no, there's no getting around that. It's, It's impossible for me to know what the harm is because the harm would itself be classified. And I don't have access to that now. It's impossible for the government to know itself what it what it doesn't get yeah. that it might have got otherwise. So there has to be some harm there. I still would maintain that there is no intelligence official who would trade the access to information they have right now in the post-Snowden era with what they had access to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or any other time in American history. Mm-hmm. The landscape of digital data is so vast, the ability to home in on mm-hmm. uh, any conversation or any database uh, remotely from around the world uh, is so great 
that they've never had anything like it. No, uh, it's like a party. It's a party for them. It's an intelligence party in a lot of ways. So what is the current American surveillance state? Obviously, we've read a lot about China and the use of facial recognition and AI and what they're doing uh, to the Uyghurs and everything. What is it here? How do you look at the American surveillance state in the United States? We are probably the, I mean, I've written this, we're the most surveilled people on the planet, not just Americans, but across the globe because of cell phones. And, and a lot of it is, we decide to let that happen. But talk about what you consider to be the dangers of what's coming up, given this vast trove of data that people now have, intelligence officials especially have, to follow us and track us. Look, the American surveillance establishment is bound by law and under a legal structure. The problems have been that we didn't know what the law was. Uh, that there is such a thing as secret law in this country. Uh, and that's a scary and dangerous thing. Uh, it, when I would write stories for the Washington Post about one or another's uh, disclosure about the NSA, you would have people like Bob Litt come out, and he was the uh, general counsel for the director of national intelligence, mm -hmm. and say every single thing in this story you describe, everything you describe here is lawful. It's it's done under color of law. Mm -hmm. And there is a great saying by an author named Michael Kinsley that sometimes the scandal is what's legal, especially if you didn't know it was legal, especially right. if you had been led Fair to believe point. by public statements that it was, wasn't was legal. I mean, look, here, here's an example. I mean, the, 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 pro the problem was dissimulation by the government. Mm -hmm. There was a famous provision of the USA Patriot Act, Section 215. People called it the library proviso because people imagined that the government would be getting copies of people's library borrowing records and spy on them that way. But what it really said was the government, with a warrant, could get access to any business record, any tangible thing. And the FBI, which made use of this power, would report every year, look, we only used this 21 times. Uh, we're doing it discreetly, proportionately, narrowly, uh, and you don't have to worry about us abusing this power. Now, they're all secret because they're all classified, but we're telling you the number. It was only 21 times this year. And then you find out, by inference from the documentation provided by Edward Snowden, that with 12 of those 21 warrants, they were mm -hmm. obtaining a trillion telephone records. Right. You know, not a million or a billion, a trillion. And that's with 12 out of the 21. And then you start to feel like you've been lied to. Mm -hmm. I mean, if your teenage daughter told you she had a party while you were out of town, but she only invited 12 people, no problem, you would be distressed and pissed off to find out that she actually had a trillion people attend. Right. Uh, you would feel you were lied to, and, and we were lied to. So what are you most worried about going forward? A lot of you talk about your own worries about being surveilled, about you being hacked. Um, is anybody safe? Or what are, what are the big worries you have, not just as a reporter, because you you you're, you're operating in an area where you would become a target, I would assume. Um, what do you think most people should be worried about? What are the top issues for the average citizen who is you know, active on Facebook, active on Twitter, or any of these social networks, uses Amazon, especially now during coronavirus, we're, giving, we're using these digital uh, services so heavily and yielding up so much information about ourselves. Well, you said earlier, and a lot of people say this, uh, and I know you understand the nuances, but you said that we give so much information freely to these big companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, just by carrying our phones around or shopping or or uh, making a posting on Facebook. And 
what hardly anyone understands is how much information is taken from us without our knowing it. Mm -hmm. What Facebook knows about you, only a small percentage of it is what you tell Facebook yes, deliberately. Indeed. Facebook collects thousands of different signals about you uh, that, that come from your machine, that come from your behavior around the internet that is, that is surveilled by Facebook, uh, Java applets that are placed on websites around the world, that come from your friends. I, for example, would never give Facebook my cell phone number. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm sure Facebook has, you know, a hundred copies of it because they've persuaded people who don't understand what they're doing to upload their address books to Facebook. So any number of my friends who know my cell phone number clicked yeah. the button without paying much attention that said, sure, take all my contacts, Facebook. And so now they, they know my cell phone number. Mm -hmm. I can't protect myself against that. So what is one to do? How do you look at the state of American surveillance? Is it just a continuous... I say because I what I say is I, I say we're, I agree with you that on the second point is that people don't realize quite how much they're taking along with the stuff you know that they're taking. But we become these sort of cheap dates to internet companies in that we get a map or a app or a dating thing and they get everything else and including making money off of it. What should people be worried about from a government level and a and a, a consumer level? You know there are a lot of people who say. First of all, I've got nothing to hide. Those yeah. people um, never really mean it. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you, sh if you can show them in any sort of granular way how much is known about them, yeah. uh, they are mortified and humiliated. Yep. And even if, you think, even if you think that you have nothing to hide, and you're wrong about that, uh, your friends and family have something to hide. Someone has told you that she's thinking of leaving her boyfriend. Someone's told you he's about to quit his job. Someone's told you that their kid has a drug problem. You are the keeper of other people's secrets in your digital space. And you're not entitled to, to behave as though you don't care about the privacy of those things. And it's very unclear what we can do about it. I mean, people have to care more. Uh, people have to demand more in terms of privacy. But I think there would actually have to be a huge change in the legal regime of information and property for uh, our relationship with these companies to change. Uh, we don't own our data. And that's a legal construct. Someone decided we don't own our data. Right. But if someone decided that I own the data about me and no one can take it uh, and sell it, and uh, and 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 uh, aggregate it without my permission. And if permission didn't just mean clicking a uh, fifteen thousand word privacy policy, uh, then this could all change very substantially. There's a gigantic, you know, multi billion dollar industry that depends on that not changing. So it would be a it, it's a heavy lift if we're going to make any progress here. But I don't know what else could do it. Well, there isn't going to be a privacy bill this year, for sure. At least there's not going to be any kind of legislation to protect consumers. And then lastly, what about our relation with government? How should we feel about that? Um, we're already sort of ensconced with these uh, tech companies as consumers uh, who know so much about us. What should we worry about from government, from our own government and from other governments? We should worry about slippery slopes, I think. You And we should worry about bad actors. So the slippery slope part is... You say, we're going to collect information only about terrorists to stop terrorism episodes, to catch terrorist networks uh, for terrorism networks. Uh, and 
Next thing you know, you're collecting every phone number from every American. Uh, mm-hmm. That's literally what happened. You had what what the Bush administration called the terrorist surveillance program, which really became a program to collect the everybody, all the metadata on everybody. And then, and then it turns out that they don't just use it uh, for counterterrorism operations. So the, or the Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act allows something called the PRISM program. And it turns out that they're collecting a lot of American data that way. And it turns out that they're allowed to use it for ordinary criminal investigations. Or what if they start using it for drug investigations? Mm-hmm. Or what if they start using it uh, for any other investigation? That This tends to be a one-way valve. Right. Somebody says, well, we have this big pile of data. It would be very valuable in order to stop this or that or improve yeah. this or that. They always find a reason. They find a reason. Uh, and especially when it happens in secret. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing, the slippery slope. The other part is the bad actors. You you, you have within living memory, you know, President Nixon, uh, who used the resources of the state for uh, domestic espionage, for political espionage, uh, and, and to punish political enemies. You have, you have a plenty of examples of things that uh, Donald Trump has at least tried to do. You have... NYPD spying on mosques. You have the FBI uh, spying on the private life of Martin Luther King because he's a dangerous and effective Negro. That was their words. Mm -hmm. Uh, And inviting him to commit suicide if he wanted to prevent the disclosure of uh, tapes of his affairs with other women. Bad people sometimes get their hands on the levers of power. It happens in this country just as it does somewhere else. And so you have to worry about the potential of certain kinds of surveillance machinery for of, of being misused. There are some machines that are so dangerous that maybe we shouldn't build them. Okay. On last, I'd be remiss on our last question. What about in the age of coronavirus, where they want to do contact tracing, where there's going to be that they that they're looking to collect a lot of data, although that seems mostly to be not working out so well due to incompetence. But would you worry about that idea of Apple and Google building a, a contact tracing app, the government having all this information about you, it, it leaking elsewhere? How so, do you look at, do you think people will be more willing to give up information? So contact tracing is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the fundamental ways that we defend yes. ourselves against a highly transmissible disease. Testing, tracing, quarantine, and so on. And contact tracing has always been done, uh, and it's been done by hand, by interviews. Mm -hmm. Apple and Google have come into this project um, with admirable openness, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have designed their API to be privacy protecting. So it does not send data about individuals back to some central server. Um, It does not track location. It tracks proximity using Bluetooth of devices. And so uh, the design of it is intended to protect privacy. I think it is nonetheless open to all kinds of abuse uh, and of unclear actual value. I mean, this strikes me as being a tech project that tech people initiated saying, we have a cool idea for something that we can do that would help you. It's not clear to me that public health people actually want or need this tool. Uh, And it may very well be that to make it more effective would make it much more privacy invading. It's also easy to come up with scenarios in which someone could game or troll the system in very damaging ways. For example, it relies on self-reporting. So, of course, you have people who who will refuse to uh, report themselves to be positive or refuse to use the thing at all. 
Mm-hmm. But you could also have people who would pretend to be positive uh, in order to I – mean, let's suppose you go into a, uh, a meeting or an encounter with your competitors. Uh, th- your competitors are all gathered together in one place, and you report yourself to be positive. Now all of those people have to be quarantined. There are worse ways that I've heard of that I'm not going to broadcast – here, uh, that the system could be could be uh, abused that sound to me as though they'd be very damaging. Absolutely. All right. So finishing up, it's seven years, I guess it's 2013 when the when this information was leaked out since this has been leaked out. If you had to pick one thing that you think good came out of this, of what he did, and one thing that you are worried about, the thing that that you are focused on going forward, what would those two things be? I think the good thing was just far greater consciousness of and a far greater investment in electronic security. The internet was an open book, uh, not only to governments, but also to hackers and criminals uh, in 2013 in ways that it just is not nearly so much today. The average person has a great deal more digital security now than they had then, and they have that because of Snowden and because of the the uh, the forces he set in motion. Uh, and I think the same goes for the public debate about this, the the boundaries of intelligence in a free society. The thing that I worry about is that there is so much economic momentum uh, and power in the private sector side that is in favor of greater and greater and more granular surveillance, that it is, I don't know, I, I, it, I don't know what kind of society we're moving into, uh, but I worry about it a lot. I worry a lot about be, the capacity to be tracked at all times in my behavior, in my location, in my associations. I, I think it is dystopic and its implications, and I don't know how to stop it. Uh, and I, unaccountable. I this, unaccountable. It's, it is absolutely unaccountable. And you're, you're right week after week. I listen to your, your pod. <laughs> I go on. You <laughs> are absolutely right to hold people's feet to the fire on this, and I hope you keep doing it. Yeah, it's not going to matter. Elon Musk just broke rules in Alameda <laughs> County, and his factory's opening. <laughs> Memo to everybody. They have as much power as they want, and we have to figure out a way. The only yeah, I would, the other, scared of you, Kara. Not really. Me and Elizabeth Warren, yeah, we're, we're a tough pair. The only thing I can think of that scares them is Vice President Elizabeth Warren, but we'll see how that goes. Anyway, Bart, thank you so much. It's a really terrific book. It's very important. Um, I urge you to uh, to read it. It's, uh, it's an important issue. Edward Snowden is a lot more complex than people realize, and I think Bart's done a great job. It's also a very funny book. I think you'll find it. it I find a lot of your going back and forth really funny. And it's a really important thing to think about going forward and to think about what it meant uh, without moving into our partisan sides or on, on these issues because it's super complex. And Bart does a great job in breaking it down. His book is called Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Bart, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Bart, where can people find you online? Twitter um, at Barton Gelman and mm-hmm. bartongelman.com. All right, and if you like, how is the how is the online book tour going? It's very interesting. It's about to start, uh, but there are there are all kinds of bookstores and uh, public events like New York Public Library mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to have in-person events. They're now switching to virtual, and they're expecting to have actually more people attend yeah. in the virtual side than, than would have 
come in person. I wish I could sign the books that way, but I can't. Yeah, well, that's all right. You can, you can, someday, someday. I'm hoping, I'm hoping we really uh, can get some reach with this. Well, cool. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious task you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers.